1: Welcome back to Sexy and Surreal, a David Lynch and David Cronenberg podcast. I am Joe Lipsit, and as always, I am joined by one Terry Menard. Hello, Terry.
0: Hello, Joe. And I have heard that uh, the spice must flow. Is that true? <laughs> uh, maybe, or that water is life? I have also heard that. I'm also getting a lot of like, there's an interior monologue happening in my head.
1: Oh, my God. Right now
0: that. Um, <laughs> I guess you probably can't hear, but you should be able to hear because that seems to be how a lot of story is told in the movie we're talking about today.
1: (sighs) Yes, folks, we have reached David Lynch's 1984 fantasy opus, Dune. And uh, this is a lot of movie, Terry. This is a lot it's a lot of movie
0: and it's ironically the only david lynch film i had seen up until this point that we started this this uh podcast so it's um so it's wild to me that this movie is my only entry point to lynch's filmography when uh i mean i think we'll get into it there's a lot of here that i definitely am seeing that is lynch Mm -hmm. but in terms of like the movie itself this feels very far removed from everything that we have
1: seen up until this point in a lot of ways yes absolutely i think what's most interesting to me is that this is his stab at a really big budget hollywood blockbuster but it's happening so early in his career like for some reason i always thought that dune was after he had made a bunch of smaller independent films and then he was like okay now is the time i'm gonna do it and i do think that that's the story but it's wild to me that this is only his third feature like what a massive undertaking
0: I was thinking about that because you know we have Eraserhead, which is this very weird little independent film that he mm-hmm. got done, and then of course he he got a lot more cachet, I would say, with Elephant Man in terms of more mainstream like right. you know knowledge of this film, mm-hmm. and so it is weird to me that those are the two benchmarks, and everyone is like, yes, let's give him a sci-fi opus because he was given. Uh, The opportunity to direct The Return of the Jedi, which he turned down because he said that George Lucas had already designed three quarters of it and he couldn't really put his stamp on it or his spin on it. Uh So, I mean, it's weird to me that these are the two movies and there I mean, there are there are sci fi elements, I would say, in those in particularly in Eraserhead. But it is weird to me that these are the two that would say, let's give him one of the biggest sci fi Books ever made
1: to for him to do. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we sometimes see this nowadays with upstart indie directors who have made splashes on the festival circuit or at like, you know, the Independent Spirit Awards or something like that. And then we throw them to the Marvel Wolves and say, like, hey, how would you like to direct this hundred, hundred and fifty, two hundred million dollar blockbuster? But There's very much a mechanism in place, right? Like Kevin Feige slots people in and says, don't worry, we're going to surround you with all the people we normally work with. There's maybe an opportunity for you to put a bit of that authorial stamp on it, but for the most part it's going to sort of come out looking more or less the same way. But yeah, that is not the case here. Like they obviously had some concept art, but like David Lynch comes in and he writes six drafts of this screenplay. So this is his take on the material.
0: It is absolutely. I, I do think from I was trying to do a, a bunch of research because there's a there's a lot out about here. But unfortunately, yeah, with the uh, the new version of Doom, there's a lot of comparison pieces. And mm-hmm. so it was hard to like peel back that we're, we're talking about this first movie and not trying to compare the two because they're yes completely different beasts.
1: They're so different. Like, yeah, the story is the same. The source material, Frank Herbert's 1965 book. Yes, all of that. But at the end of the day, like the process between 2020s version by Denis Villeneuve is like night and day different to what David Lynch was working with.
0: Absolutely. Night and day is the perfect example for it, because I I would say watching Lynch's film, you can see a lot of the eraser head sort of Mm -hmm. sort of like uh, post-apocalyptic. Yes. Kind of metal everything. Mm -hmm. And I in terms of like some of the world building that that is going on here and there's there's definitely more color. There's particularly a lot of golds and a lot Mm -hmm. of different color, whereas Denny, his is very monochrome and very. um, Yes stylish i mean it, it's his style but like it is it definitely
1: is. it's cold it's a little antiseptic yes. uh you know it's sort of presenting this future focus world where everything is almost authoritarian in its yes. rigidity whereas there is something so 80s about lynch's film where it's like there's a vibrancy to the color and like a playfulness to the costume design and like I mean, you can see the lingering effects of H.R. Geiger and like mm. a little bit of Alien, because, of course, all those people initially worked on some of the film and you can see it sort of seeping into David Lynch's consciousness. And then he's throwing that into the mix with what he learned on Eraserhead.
0: Absolutely. So watching this movie now made me sad in a way because
1: oh, okay. the sets are oh, just my God immaculate. And the scope is so massive. Like, I think that's the thing I forgot about this. I was trying to avoid doing a comparison with Villeneuve's film, but I, in my mind, had diminished the scope of this original film. And just hitting play, I I watched this on Amazon Prime, but I think they got a really good version of this. Like, I don't know if it's a 4K cut, but it looked like a 2K cut at the bare minimum, because it is crisp it is clean the vision of this is kind of immaculate often in a gross way but in a very compelling way and i think so much attention has been paid to the set design and the costuming like it really is a bit of a gorgeous slash ugly film
0: my first thought once we got past the over long um
1: oh my god (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we'll talk though. about the voiceover narration and the exposition because I think it's a huge hurdle.
0: It is. But the the first like look at the world in terms mm-hmm. of this this giant um throne room type mm. thing. Oh
1: my god, yes. Where it's
0: like gold and it's just there's a lot of people milling about. It reminded it felt very old Hollywood in in ways that mm. we don't see anymore with like giant sets because everything now yes. is created in cg and some some places are like we'll use a little bit of sets and then everything else will be green screened. Mm-hmm. but like this was a physical set that people are walking on interacting with things are moving up and down that obviously they look real like it has a, yes. a sense of place that a lot of modern blockbusters do not have no yeah and it just it surprised the hell out of me i was like oh this is This is epic because, again, yes, I had seen this movie, but I have not seen it since I was a kid. And my memories as a kid are related to thinking
1: I was weirdly attracted to Sting and not sure why. Oh, my God. (laughs) The moment he comes out in that like weird bikini thing, you're just like, oh, oh, I'm I'm gay.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I didn't know it then, but I was like, oh, there's Mm -hmm. something this is doing it for me. And I don't know why. So I remember that. I remember uh, Harkonnen because he is absolutely I mean, wild. wild. And we're going to be talking about that in depth, I think. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> literally those and then the the sandworms. Literally, that is all I could remember from watching this as a kid. And so mm-hmm. to be greeted with this big giant set, these vibrant colors, a big, huge cast. I was like, okay, this is this is different than i than i thought it was going to be and i was i was here for it
1: yeah as you were talking i was listening but also double checking we're talking 80 sets built on 16 sound stages god damn that's massive massive and i think you're right like this does have that kind of old hollywood vibe to it in just the scale of Mm -hmm. the production like you know, this was a very expensive film in 1984 cost $42 million. It was considered a flop because it only made about 30 to 31. But I, I honestly don't know what they expected. Because I don't. Okay, let me take a, a further step back. We should confess you and I are not Dune experts. No, I have read the book. Have you read the book?
0: I have not read the book. Uh, I don't think. I I don't remember reading the book. I might have. My mom was a huge fan of the Dune series, so we Mm -hmm. had them all. I might have picked it up and lackadaisically looked through it, but um, I was more a fantasy nerd, not a sci-fi nerd growing up, so I I do not believe that I have read the novels, but I I honestly cannot remember.
1: Okay. Interesting you say that. I would almost classify this a bit more as fantasy than sci-fi, but... Maybe that's just because of the worms.
0: No, and I I do think that that is, I I think this, like Star Wars in a way, kind of merges the two because I Mm -hmm. was, for me, my, when I say fantasy, I guess my, my scope was very limited in terms of, of a kid. It was like dragons and wizards and, you know, Mm -hmm. fantasy, not necessarily going to different planets and a plot being Mm -hmm. about the spice being able to open up we allowing travel. I'm not exactly sure what the spice does to allow (laughs) space travel. I'm still a little confused about that. But um, so that kind of stuff was never interesting to me. Laser guns, that kind of aspect. But there is hints in here, definitely, particularly with the uh, female witches. I don't even Mm. know what they're called. (laughs) Bella. Bene benegesser i think
1: yes something like that there's there's a lot of funky terminology which i think is why i leaned a little bit more towards fantasy because it often seems like when we're doing made-up worlds and entire civilizations like we're often giving them their own nomenclature they've got social hierarchies that are completely fabricated to really flesh out and build out the world I'm sure there's a bunch of people who are yelling at us, saying like, "Oh, absolutely!" Let us tell you the distinction between hard <laughs> sci-fi, fantasy, and so on. I'm going to give a, a quick shout out because I have a, a friend, Megan Sunday. She writes for the Spool, but she actually has a Dune podcast called Weirding Pod. And if you if you're an, a hard advocate for Dune. Terry and I are probably going to muddle through this episode and have interesting conversations, but if you want someone who actually knows their shit, I would encourage you to go and check out Megan Sunday's pod.
0: Hell yeah. Yeah.
1: That's cool. But I mean, I want to come back to this exposition piece because at the end of the day, this was always going to be a very hard sell for people. Like the book was very well known. It had been very popular, but in the same way that like, orson scott card and uh you know some other oh god now i'm gonna say fantasy sci-fi authors (laughs) like just because something is popular in one medium doesn't make it a slam dunk in another and having read the book this feels like both a faithful adaptation and also a kind of coles notes cliff notes version of it like it is incredibly condensed and the fact that most productions of dune seem to say we either need a series or we need two films and what we get here is one film is very evident to me like there's there's problems that pushed people away from finding this accessible or enjoyable so we see this in the reliance on voiceover narration on interior thoughts that we can hear as an audience to explain things and then to me the back half of this film is a bit of a hot mess because we are just like racing through things to the point where okay now paul suddenly has a sister and it's like she just is there and cool very important to the plot (laughs) like there's just a little bit too much of that happening in the back half that i think you don't end the movie on a satisfactory note it feels like okay what did i even just consume
0: uh yes (laughs) 110 (laughs) percent yes again i don't want to like try to compare the two but when i was watching this movie i was trying to think where in the 2021 dune Where we were in that plot versus this one, because this this movie does get to the end of Villanueva's uh, Dune in about an hour and a half versus his what three hour movie, yeah. Because like we do get to that point, but then the last forty five ish minutes of this film Mm -hmm. is an absolute mess to the point that it is. It feels like all I'm getting this entire movie is exposition dump because we have the exposition dump at the beginning. We have a lot of the interior monologues that are happening where people are thinking about things or explaining things to the audience or filling people in on things that have happened Mm -hmm. in the audience. We have the dreams, which are also kind of exposition dumps. A little bit. And then we get to this last 45 minutes that is basically we're going to somehow speed through two years.
1: Uh Uh-huh. And like a war, a full-blown war. A (laughs) full-blown
0: war. It's just like little vignettes at this point. And it reminded me, and this is... This is going to be a very deep cut, but there's this video game called Xeno Gears, which came out on the PlayStation <laughs> 1, okay. and it was like this Magnum Opus game that was so absolutely fantastic for half the game, and then they ran out of budget, and so the last half oh, of the no. game was basically, you're reading, it became a visual novel almost, you're reading a bunch of text, and wow. then there'd be a couple battles, and there'd be more yeah. text, and that's, I had that, that same thought watching this movie, where it's like, okay, we are building to something, and I'm enjoying it for the most part, mm-hmm. but then it just fell apart. Yeah, for me.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly how I feel too, because I've seen so many people, you know, oh my god, you're watching Dune 1984 thoughts and prayers. And I'm like, <laughs> I turn this on. And yeah, I'm amazed by the scope. I'm a little put off by how inaccessible some of the exposition is and it doesn't always feel like you know the movie is very much saying don't worry you'll catch on to this but yeah we're gonna throw you into the thick of it with just scenes of the the emperor being visited and told like you need to kill this this person and we have a whole conversation with you know what basically looks like the spermazoa from (laughs) a racer head in a tank (laughs) With kind of a little bit of an a uh, uh, there's there's a ball sack feel to the face of it as oh, well. Indeed. Yes, yes. It's, it's very grossly sexual in all of the David Lynch typical ways. And I realize, you know, when the scene ends, like it's a full scene, like it's a full conversation. It is a fair amount of exposition, but we're talking about people we have not met on mm-hmm. planets we have not visited. With very hard words to say. Yeah, and it's rough. Like, I could only imagine if you just saw Cool, uh, it's going to be David Lynch directing a bunch of relatively well known people, an international cast, it looks expensive, space movie. You're going to go into this being like, wait, what am I watching right now? So I think this is, in a way, they made it very difficult for themselves to the point that I'm not surprised that somebody said, hi, can we hire Virginia Madsen to come in and just do some (laughs) quick old voiceover narration, introduce this movie for us? Does she show up at all again? She does. She shows up in one of the very late scenes where we see uh, the Emperor dress down Harkonnen. Okay. Basically, when we see Harkonnen's nephew get beheaded, beheaded. she's right. like in the background of the Emperor's entourage.
0: Because that, that also like is, is Storytelling 101, where you introduce this character and she's giving mm-hmm. us a very long exposition dump. And then I was like halfway through the movie and I'm like who was she like I had to go back to the Wikipedia to go wait why was Virginia
1: Madsen in here and who is she playing and why haven't I seen her again 100% and they don't make it clear in the movie and like when this movie came out Wikipedia did not exist the internet was not a popular thing like it it was really for military and medical purposes you would have just had to be like oh I guess she's a star child like (laughs) this is maybe David Lynch doing 2001 yeah it's wild. It is absolutely wild. It is. But the,
0: one of the things, and it's very minor, but one of the things that well, I don't, maybe it isn't very minor, but because <laughs> who knows in this movie. But who one knows? of the things that that I it brought me back to head that I noticed immediately is the use of sound. OK, mm-hmm. because even in that first opening scene um, where we get the, the ball sack spermazoa and the, the whole like exposition dump that we're going to kill paul mm-hmm. um there's a lot of background noises and there's a lot of constant humming and constant shh, like hissing sounds and things oh, yes. that brought me mm-hmm. back to when we watched Eraserhead because that movie again had so much to do with with textural sounds to kind of make you feel it unease and make the world feel like it is constantly vibrantly alive but also mm-hmm. oppressive and I right. felt the same way in this in this movie where there is like a lot of times when the score, which I think is they use the theme a little too much, but the theme is gorgeous. Mm, I did like it. Yeah. But when there's no music, there is still a, a loud thrum and a lot, lot of sound textures that are being used to create this sort of um, this feel for it that feels after three movies, incredibly Lynch.
1: Right. Yeah, we we talked about that a lot in the Eraserhead episode, just how pervasive that kind of all-encompassing soundtrack was. And then we saw it not quite diluted, but maybe more efficiently used in Elephant Man, like it was setting the stage in certain parts of that film mm-hmm. to help us understand how the city functioned or like, Where the elephant man was located within this large hospital. And then here, it feels like we found a solid combination of the two, right? So the world is constantly in production, but then there are still quiet moments. Like the palace stuff is often very quiet because it feels like we're waiting for the assassins to strike or there's fewer people around. And then that way, it really thrums to life when we go out across the desert so that we can see the sand production, and we can be scared of the giant sandworms and so on. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I I think that's, that's fascinating. And I think that is one of the things that he was able to keep control of in the in this film, because I, I do think when I was, again, doing a little bit of research on The kind of background for this it did feel like there's a lot of producers kind of stepping in and trying to rein in lynch's more esotericness for lack of a better word and i do feel that in this case with the the visual design of the creatures and also the sound design i do think that that is something that felt okay this is lynch this is this is why this movie is important for a lynch filmography
1: Yeah, it's sad, because I feel like I can really see it in certain parts. And then other parts of the film feels never fully generic Hollywood opus. But it does feel like, yeah, somebody saying, can you please make it a little bit more palatable to a mass audience? But like, especially the opening of this film, right? When we have Virginia Madsen done up like some kind of Princess Leia, star child, and she's half transparent over the cosmos delivering this exposition. I was like, oh, this really does remind me of a racer head and like the woman in the clouds and that kind of stuff. Like, it felt like a throwback and I don't know that I would have thought of it if we hadn't just watched *A Eraserhead like it wouldn't have been fresh in my mind. But it does feel like that kind of cosmic sensibility that Lynch is interested in that he's folded in in various ways to these first three films.
0: Yeah, that was one of the first notes I took where I said that she's flashing between the stars. It's flashing between the stars in her face. She's fading Mm -hmm. in and out, phasing in and out. And then I put in all caps, call back to the cosmic ideals of Eraserhead, And so it's something that I definitely picked up on this watch that, like you just said, I probably would not have caught if we weren't going through
1: his filmography. Mm -hmm. And then the kind of like... The industrialized, mechanical, obviously very militarized approach to the way that this system is set up, like, you know, Paul has certain expectations put upon him by his father, but like, even the kind of military dress code that we see before they head off to Arrakis it harkens back to the kind of medical garb that we saw a little bit in The Elephant Man. So it feels like he's picking and choosing these little things that are carrying forward, like, you know what, I like that, that worked well, I can shoot that, it fits into this narrative that I'm constructing, let's carry that over into a successive film.
0: Yes. And I, I also do think that one of the things that pulled Lynch to this when I was when I was doing a bit of, of research is the idea of, of world building and mm-hmm. his ability mm-hmm. to kind of tackle completely different worlds. And I think that that is something that is really successful here because we have that that opening world. We get to see a little bit of the Atreides and I cannot remember what what the names of these particular worlds are off the top of my head, but yeah. we get that. And then we also get Harkonnen's more. Um, Harkonnen's world feels like it it should exist in the same world as Eraserhead. There's like that big bulbous fetus maybe that is like spitting out smog. And there's like Uh big, um, Oh, I love that thing. Yeah. It's so good. But like the way that he is able to fully differentiate these worlds that kind of feeds into the kind of texture and the character Mm -hmm. of each of these different, um, opposing forces is really... It really worked for me in terms of of, um, seeing Lynch's kind of visual aesthetic on display to the point that like I could see why he would, even if this movie was ultimately kind of maybe negative experience for him, Mm -hmm. I could see what immediately pulled him to it because he does create distinct worlds that are visually arresting
1: yeah and it, it's so disappointing because we won't really get to see him working on this grand scale ever again like he yeah. he will have things that kind of approach the sort of political machinations and the you know the weird surreal intersection between dreams and that kind of stuff like he will pursue that but it will never be on this size and that's disappointing because when somebody gives 40 million dollars to someone like david lynch this is what we can get right like the storytelling isn't always cohesive it's not always accessible to mainstream audiences but when you watch this movie i think you're going to have a reaction to the look and the feel of it it reminded me a bit of watching alien resurrection you know what terry that is a fucking fantastic comparison (laughs)
0: yes because that is another movie where it's like well what did you expect was going to happen if you handed yes the fourth film in this (laughs) franchise to
1: uh the guy that would do amelie Uh uh-huh or the city of lost children the city of lost children beforehand (laughs) yeah like i think they thought they were gonna get like something more palatable and it's like no you you gave it to someone who is i'm sorry to sound all fucking film school but you gave it to an auteur yeah and they're gonna do their thing like that's why you hired this person they weren't uh-huh. going to give you a studio film you weren't going to get a repeat of alien and in this case you're
0: not going to get a star wars which is i think what right was probably the intent behind you know doing this one because star wars was such a big hit and so i think that that was sort of what they wanted to do but again you're handing it off to a person that made eraser and elephant man what mm-hmm. did you expect was going to happen
1: well, that's so interesting, too. I mean, like, obviously, the production of this was troubled. As you suggested, it was not a good experience for David Lynch. But also, like, he wasn't their first choice. They wanted Ridley Scott to do this after mm-hmm. Alien, and Ridley Scott tried it, and it didn't work, in part because, like, his brother was having some issues. And then they tried to go for fucking Joe Jodorowsky. And if folks want to see an absolutely bananas, gonzo like, if you wanted to see what Dune could have been, I really highly encourage the documentary Jodorowsky's Dune, because that fucking movie makes this movie look like a cakewalk. Like, in terms of accessibility and weirdness, like, Jodorowsky would have blown the fucking roof off of this joint. He really would have. And I, I have not seen that documentary. I
0: kind of wanted to after oh, watching so this one, because... I'm not very familiar with Jodorowsky's work, but looking at sort of the people that he wanted to have in the cast (laughs) alone—Salvador Dali, like Uh Orson Welles, Mick Jagger, like Udo Kier, David Mm -hmm. (laughs) Carradine—like just (laughs) bananas. I just I can only imagine what what that movie would have been.
1: Well, I mean, he's he's a striking visual artist. Like, if folks haven't checked out Jodorowsky, he makes. Absolutely gorgeous movies, like filled with religious symbolism, but they're also very challenging and they are not marketable to anyone except like art fiends. So, in a way, you wanted that taste of Jodorowsky, but you wanted the commercial viability of an elephant man. And that's why you end up with David Lynch. But then David Lynch gives you David Lynch and then you don't like it. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah but also this movie needed two movies like i honestly do think that if we had have capped this story off because i think you and i identified basically villeneuve caps it where lynch should have ended the first film absolutely and i think this movie would be much better remembered if that had been the case because yeah it's a little challenging it's a little hard to get into but once you're into it it all does make sense this is basically just shakespearean politics we've got two families at war with one another we're trying to assassinate people and the son has to step up and become the leader when his dad dies like it's not that complicated it's just that we're throwing in some difficult words we got a couple of witches we got a box that burns and a tracker jacker needle thing it's like okay there's some weird stuff in here but it's not yeah like you said we had star wars at this point so it's not like we hadn't talked about things like the force before and yet because you have to cram so much fucking mythology and so much world building so many characters like you can't do this even in a movie that is running this long
0: no i i had to have wikipedia up a lot of time to just to like okay Mm -hmm. we are using weirding modules like what the fuck is that and all it is like there's a moment where he's where Atreides is Paul Atreides is teaching the Fremen how to use his style of combat. And I was like, it's basically mm-hmm. just a gun that you're shouting into what, what is going on here? Like even that kind of stuff, I was it was sending me to Wikipedia to try to figure out <laughs> yeah. what are all these things. And that's not something that people at this time would have had. So if you mm-hmm. had not read the book, probably multiple times and had like a complete understanding of the sort of terminology and the sort of more surreal aspects of it then
1: i i think you would you'd be at a loss absolutely yeah and i i agree i mean i think it's a challenge with any kind of adaptation where are you making this for new audiences or are Mm. you making this for fans of the source material? And I think that this is structured as a bit of both because I think fans of the book would say that this movie is not hitting the mark, but folks who haven't read the book are completely lost to a bunch of this stuff. You probably needed to strip out a bunch of these secondary characters just to streamline it, but then you're alienating your fan base. So it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. situation for sure. But I think at the end of the day, like, the movie is too ambitious for its own good, but it's like, well, I don't get to make a second movie, so I have to do the entire adaptation in one film. And, shockingly enough, it's overstuffed and overblown and slightly incomprehensible in the back half. Yeah. 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 Okay, but Terry, we are also avoiding a very significant (sighs) conversation so i've seen this movie once before i have read the book it never pinged me before how homophobic harkonnen is (sighs) yeah uh
0: (laughs) that was (laughs) full stop i I, I don't even know what to say Uh, when i when i got to the the scene in in particular that like first of all i could not believe this movie was (laughs) pg-13 it's rough he gets a lot of mileage out of uh that rating because there is the the scene in particular where we first get introduced to the baron and he has doctors that are cooing over his diseases Mm -hmm. your diseases are will be lovingly cared for for all eternity i was like okay this is really kind of creepy and weird and so cronenberg it is so cronenberg (laughs) absolutely uh you know, it would have been it would have been hilarious if they had cast Cronenberg in terms of that, that oh doctor, because it would have, been, yeah. would have been that would have been that would have just would have been perfect. But we have that. And then we have this. Um, I guess he's a slave, a servant. I'm not yes. really sure what that is. A in, slave. Yeah, basically, it looks like he's going to a wet T-shirt contest, like except mm-hmm. a wet clothing contest. It's like it's completely white. It's like sticking to his skin. Mm-hmm. Baron is obviously lasciviously staring at him. Yep. Then we get this weird ass oil bath where he's staring at this young man and the man is terrified. He pulls out this
1: heart plug, which I guess is to keep his heart beating. I'm not exactly sure. It's apparently to keep them in line. So there's a, a fleeting moment later on when one of the House Atreides people yeah. are are captured and they've installed this plug-in. And it's basically, you need to do what I say or I remove this and you will just spurt blood until you die. Which is exactly what happened to this poor young man.
0: Yep. And it's, it's gruesome. It Except is the gruesome. Baron
1: is literally giving himself a blood facial. Yep. While also seemingly having like an orgasm over this young man dying. And then we get the uh the interior
0: monologue of him where he says, This is what I'll do to the Duke and his family. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, so we are we are just going into over the top villain at this point, but also over the top, pederast, incestual, mm-hmm. queer
1: villain. Yeah, because he clearly also has the hots for his nephew, who is the Sting character, Fade. Yeah. And Fade also seems weirdly into it at at a couple points. It's just... Mm -hmm. (sighs) Yeah, I mean, you and I are old enough to recognize that, like, this is a movie that's made in the 80s, and the 80s is a period of AIDS. So if we're going to have queer characters, the comparison or the commentary is almost inevitable. And even if they didn't intend for it to be this way, like literally, we have a queer coded character, also fat phobic. Oh, yeah. Incestuous, pedophilic, uh, yeah, lusting after young Twinkie boys, and then giving himself a blood facial. And he's meant to be this despicable character who also has very evident boils on his face. Like, yep. it's all there, people.
0: Yeah, and you had sent me this really fascinating article uh, before we recorded, and I was both like intrigued but also appalled at the stuff that I was reading in it. In terms of <laughs> what is actually in the book as well, because yes. in the book it's even more. Uh, kind of, I mean, this is disgusting as it is, but it's even more so in the book where there's this line where he tells a guardsman, I'll be in my sleeping chamber chambers. Bring me that young fellow we bought on Gamont, the one with the lovely eyes. Drug him well, I don't feel like wrestling.
1: yeah and i'm yeah. like wow that is in the book <laughs> mm-hmm. so <laughs> and it's what he wants to do to polly tree so yes. it's not like this is an isolated incident you know this person is a sexual predator who rapes young boys yep yeah we'll link that article in the show notes it it is helpful in understanding this was not lynch being like oh i'm going to make my villain queer coded it's oh frank herbert has a problem with gay people which is also uncomfortable because one of his sons was gay and apparently it was a huge point of contention to the point that like the family ended up almost divided and the son who is gay ended up dying of aids
0: <sighs> yeah
1: the and that article has like the obituary for
0: bruce C. herbert the, the the son and it's uh it, it was a very troubling read but it also mm-hmm. got me thinking what is it with sci-fi author- authors that have, like, such empathy in terms of exploring what the world could be, mm-hmm. but also being incredibly homophobic? Because Orson
1: Scott Card is also very oh similar God. in that regard. The biggest piece of shit. Sorry, and if folks don't know who Orson Scott Card is, he's the author of the Ender's Game series. Yeah, a book series
0: that um I really enjoyed, and particularly uh-huh. Speaker for the Dead, the sequel. was oh my like. God.
1: It's the best.
0: It's an amazing book. It's like one of the first times where I had read sci-fi that I was like, "Oh, I get sci-fi. I get why people love it because this is fantastic." And then mm-hmm. you start yeah. to realize <laughs> the way that he uh the way that he is in person and it's just it's 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 frustrating to me that we could have a movie that is about the the final stages of capitalism late, you mm-hmm. know where it's it's destroying everything everyone hates everyone the <laughs> the people that are working on the the planet that has all of the resources needed to keep the capitalistic machine moving are subjugated and looked as lesser than human so mm-hmm. we have like all of these different empathetic and very i would say kind of um you know progressive looks at forms of oppression in terms of Exploring what capitalism and greed and that kind of aspect of tyranny is. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like you have no compassion for any, no. for people that are othered. And it's it's weird to me that that could exist
1: in this book. Yeah, it's selected othering. But yeah, I mean, that was the other big piece that I feel like I didn't re. <laughs> it's so dumb because it's very, very obvious when you start to think about it. But yeah, this is a book about colonialism. Like mm-hmm. it's about the Atreides family going in saying, hey, if we take control of this planet, like as we've been told to do by the emperor, we can elevate the status of our household across the galaxy because spice is the most important thing in the universe. All we have to do is keep the indigenous local population at bay mm-hmm. but they're completely underestimated they're actually far more advanced technologically spiritually uh, we're talking about the fremen at this point and you know obviously this is a very colonial project like the atreides have come to this planet and they are taking natural resources at the expense of the local community Sure, we can talk about the white savior problem here where Paul Atreides is secretly revealed to be the chosen one and only he can deliver, blah, 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 blah. But it's it's interesting that we're in 1965 when the book is written and then 1984 when this film comes out, very much saying, let's have a conversation about capitalism and colonialism and how it's not fucking good. But also, queer people deserve to get AIDS and die. And they're all evil. (laughs) Yes, yeah it's um it's a lot it's a very weird like okay well i guess we're we're gonna do one thing with one hand and not so with the other i don't know i don't want to belabor the point um if only because i do want to have a conversation about harconan's costuming and the way that he's portrayed in the text like not the uncomfortable pedophilic gay stuff but rather the fact that he's basically like a human inflatable who floats around (laughs) (laughs) i kind of love
0: it i do
1: too i
0: i you know the actor ghosts were broke i really enjoyed as much as it was a disgusting performance i enjoyed his mm-hmm. performance and the sort of almost camp feel when he oh is god yes floating around over everybody it's like you just want to like poke him and see how if he's gonna like you know is he is he weightless is he just gonna start mm-hmm. like careening off the walls like it, it's it's such a visual aesthetic that I just I don't know. I, I loved I loved his design. It's the one thing that I did vividly remember as a kid, because I think mm-hmm. it kind of weirded me out because he was so yeah. bigger than life in terms of personality and costuming that it just it's the one thing that stuck out at me um, as a kid and is is
1: stayed with me for, gosh, 30 years. Mhm-, yeah, like regardless of how you feel about Harkonnen as an actual character, as a villain who is queer coded, uh definitely Kenneth McMillan is having the best time in this movie, like he is delivering this campy eating the sets kind of performance that it really helps to sell why. This person is despicable, but also scary, and yeah, just visually, it's so memorable. Watching him float around and attack people, I really enjoy this as much as I'm made uncomfortable by it.
0: Same, absolutely. Because I was watching, I was watching it, and I was going, "This is." I took so many notes about like the problematic aspect of it, how gross it was, how it made me feel icky,
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: and how it, it frustrated me in terms of seeing yet another queer queer villain. But at the same mm-hmm. time, I'm like. There's something oddly watchable about his performance oh, and sure. the costume yeah. design is is fantastic. But I also I love the costumes in this period. I was thinking one of the things I was thinking is there's the this matriarch uh, part of the Bene Gesserit mm-hmm. society and she has like a head cape. And I'm like, I want a yes. head cape <laughs> and rocking the bald look. yes. I was like, "This is this is great." I I honestly I was like, "Could I pull off a head, Kate? That'd be that'd be fantastic."
1: <laughs> I mean, maybe you should <laughs> probably, probably not, try but... and find out. <laughs> but yeah, I I think that's one of the other things I find slightly frustrating about. I'm I'm gonna blame the original source text because this is how it's written. But the fact that we have this fantastical matriarchal like witchy group of people like they can see the future they're conducting secret experiments to control the universe right like they Mm -hmm. literally tell jessica paul atreides mother you know hey you're one of us you've married this duke he's very important but also never give him a child as though she can assign gender to children yes and it's so like i'm obsessed with this group of women and what they do and how like yeah just how they're controlling things and it's almost disappointing to me that then paul atreides comes in and is like yeah i'm the chosen one i'm gonna change the future of the world and i'm like you're basic like you're played by, <laughs> by con mclaughlin you've got a great head of hair but also it's so boring that women are so powerful and then this one man comes in
0: <laughs> well and this one man comes in and it, it's it's <laughs> it goes against their their plan because they uh-huh. want to just have all the, the these these female uh births and then the one man comes in to upset the matriarchal society and he is the savior. So yeah. it, it's it's weird on that regard too, but also i i feel that the the female characters in this are um reduced completely in oh, favor of the male characters to the point that i was like why do we even have is it Chani? Is that her name?
1: Yes yeah chani is uh the fremen girl that he falls in love with mm-hmm. and then and why <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't i have no idea either and then we have alia the
0: the, the sister who apparently ages really quick in two years and mm-hmm. she feels like the omen kid has been gender yes. swapped and dropped into this like she i wanted more of her to be perfectly honest because oh god when she yeah. is like giving this speech to the Emperor in Harcodin and she's uh-huh. using her demon voice. I'm like, this is the bonkers shit I want to see.
1: Oh, fully, yeah. I mean, it's super fun because it's baby alicia witt from urban legend and sybil oh and, shit. yeah she she shows up so late in the film because this is when we're just speeding through everything so it's like yeah you know uh mom went into labor she came out fully formed even though she was premature and then yeah she's just this little precocious child who is using the voice like the the powerful voice that we can control people with to basically dress down the emperor to the point where she more or less like Paul is meant to be the chosen one savior but she's the one doing all the heavy lifting in this climax and it's amazing to watch this I mean she must be what five seven or something and she's just like I control you Go away. (laughs) You're just like, this is amazing. Why have we been doing this for 30 minutes at this point? Come on. Like, this needed to be way earlier. I need more of this character. Where is this bizarre energy throughout the rest of the movie? Because it... Uh
0: I I literally sat back in my seat and went, what is happening right now? Because it felt completely out of left field for a lot of the... I I do think this movie, in some ways, is is very self-serious, and I don't know if it's because of Mm. uh, the outside producers or or what, but there's a lot of it that feels like once we're starting to get a little too weird, we have to rein it back in, and that Uh, is the sequence where it's like full-on weirdness
1: it's full hog weirdness yes <laughs> which in a way is good that it's happening right at the climax because by this point we're riding the giant worms you know we're shooting laser guns and yeah we've got this child doing a darth vader impersonation and it's very entertaining it just unfortunately comes at the tail end uh and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened and yeah you're right it feels like a series of vignettes and then the movie's just done so i'm kind of exhausted by this point i was mesmerized by what the fuck is going on in these last like five to ten minutes listen if there was another 30 minutes that
0: was all about that character i probably Mm -hmm. would have strapped in for the for the rest of, of of watching more of it but at that point i was like there's 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 not enough going on here although i will say in terms of content i i you know paul and stillgar were giving each other eyes an awful lot while uh writing those giant worms the very phallic
1: worms yeah 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 (laughs) i mean the fact that Chani's barely a character in Uh here which by the way you've got sean fucking young and you're doing jack shit with her (laughs) like cut this character out of this movie release this poor actress paul had more more chemistry with stillgar than he did Uh with chani (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah, there was some, like even with um his interest in Duncan, the mm-hmm. guy who was like mm-hmm. training him and that kind of stuff, you're just like I think Paul likes daddy figures. Yeah. <laughs> Get it, Paul? Get it, Paul? <laughs> also, 90% of the men in this movie are very hot. Oh, absolutely. I'm sorry, but Daddy Daddy Duke, uh oh. Jurgen Prochnow, he's apparently Hello. from Does Boot. I haven't seen it, but uh I was like, oh, you're serving just absolutely hot daddy action right now. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I him
0: sting uh oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I forgot how ripped he was in this. Like I was like, okay.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Loving Even, it. Like, Dean Stockwell, who I only know from uh Quantum Leap, I was just like, oh, you're giving me some weird vibes as well <laughs> <laughs> he plays the doctor by the way if yes you don't know who he is. uh you you right the, the yes g- the traitor the traitor
0: but also it was really cool to see uh brad dorif in person because like a mm-hmm. lot of times i'm associating him with as the voice of chucky oh sure and i mean minus minus those bushy eyebrows he was he was kind of doing it too
1: yeah <laughs> i I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you i actually i feel like his performance doesn't match the energy of the rest of the characters like particularly no. in that early introductory scene with harconan it does feel like he's doing something completely different like he's in a different movie yeah and i actually fair. found that he was taking me out that's fair that's fair but it's just because brad Dourif gives such wild energy in most of his performances so i do think he's a good fit for this character but yeah it didn't feel like it was on par with what everyone else in the scene was doing
0: also has patrick stewart ever aged
1: right he just always looks the same he looks the same (laughs) except when they tried to give him more hair in those later scenes and it's a bad look the mullet was not it sir oh no (laughs) (laughs) oh boy I think overall this movie is obviously very troubled. It's not it's not a good film. I can understand why it has developed a bit of a cult reputation. Obviously there's a bunch of different cuts so that immediately kind of elevates a film into ooh, you got to collect them all. We've mm. gotten a couple of really premium Blu-ray and 4K releases at this point. So like the film clearly has an audience. I wish I could see a sort of untarnished version or even like what would a two movie version of this look like because i do think that people would appreciate it a great deal more and i think unfortunately now that we've gotten a very very good version of it in villanoise i think people are just gonna shit on this more and more uh i'm yeah i'm afraid
0: of that as well because i'll be even I'll be perfectly honest as I was watching this back half all I kept thinking particularly with the giant worms and the big battles that were happening I was like mm-hmm. I cannot wait to see what can't this wait looks to see like. what it's gonna look like <laughs> that is literally what I was thinking this entire time I was like yeah. I cannot wait to see what this back half is gonna look like in uh-huh. 2023 is its planned release right now
1: yeah and like what is what does this 40 minute version look like when it gets properly stretched out to probably two yes. and a half or three hours yes yeah it's just the storytelling is so condensed that i don't know how i think we can make allowances for it but it doesn't make it pleasurable like i honestly i spent the entire back half of the movie just going Ugh, come on what are we doing right now just it's not working how did no one say no we're expediting this too much like it does it doesn't play well
0: yeah i also was um i don't know the the, the anticlimactic Final battle between uh, Paul and uh, fade, no other than him causing fade's internal organs to explode, which was kind of cool to see entertaining, like, yeah, it was entertaining mm-hmm. i was I was thinking this is it's so underwhelming, it's so muted, yeah, <laughs> especially after seeing these giant worms you know launching across, which I thought was looked really good, considering mm-hmm. you know when it was filmed, and i the worm design I think. I think they look good. They do look good, and I kept thinking, "Oh, this is where Tremors got their their look from because Uh they feel very uh, Tremors like in that regard. They look like giant graboids for sure. They do, absolutely. But (laughs) there's a lot of really cool stuff that is going on. That it just it felt like it was one after another, and there wasn't enough um, downtime or enough like story beats in between them. That it was just like, you want spectacle? I'm going to give you spectacle, but there's no context for that spectacle. (laughs) Mm-hmm. and then we end up with a one-on-one knife duel yeah to end the the movie yeah at which point like
1: Harkonnen's already
0: been taken care of yeah by having his nipple clamp pulled out and then she sticks like, him with the needle into the finger atmosphere? <laughs> and then she, yes just yeet it into the worm's mouth fantastic
1: sure. yeah i mean it's fun it makes sense but it's also like oh well that was easy how come nobody did this earlier (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it's really upsetting because i i did really enjoy about the first hour and a half of this movie to the point where i was just like is everyone wrong about this and then the last 40 minutes was like oh there we go there's the steep plunge Mm.
0: yeah i that was that was exactly my thoughts too I, i was watching it and i'm like okay Um, there's a lot of exposition. I really hate the interior monologues. I really am disliking some of the ways that it's slowing down that story. But I was also okay, I'm on board. This Mm -hmm. may be better than I was expecting it to be. Right. And then the the drop off after that is just it's it's too steep. It's too steep for me. Yeah, it's hard to recover from. This is unfortunate because there's a lot of really great stuff going on in this, particularly in the visual language that is that is happening in this movie that felt very um, ahead of its time for mm-hmm. 1984.
1: Yeah. And, and it's sad, too, because it's not like Herbert only wrote one book. Like, there were opportunities to turn this into a franchise had yeah. we done this properly. But
0: conversely, if this had been incredibly successful, I mean, what would what would Lynch's career look like after that? If this, if he became stuck into this, would, would we get the kind of off the wall things that, that I think he is more known for? I, I, so I am curious if this happened for a reason, not to be fatalistic about it, but like the idea Mm -hmm. that if this had been successful, would we have just gotten a bunch of other Dune movies and we would not have seen Lynch do
1: what he did with twin peaks and all that other, all the other jazz
0: that we're going to be covering.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very valid point. I mean, one of the interesting things about Cronenberg and Lynch, respectively, but also together, is that in a way, they dabble on the outskirts of highly commercial enterprises. Mm. And they often seem to take a step back from it, like they find their way back to either genre or texts that are more personally connected to them or like what they're passionate about. And I think Cronenberg ends up falling into that trap a little bit more. Like he, he really has a Hollywood part of his career and the movies get far less interesting or maybe just less appealing to genre people like you and I. But this is Lynch saying, I'm going to give it a go. And I mean, yeah, if this had a gone well it's possible that he might have said, okay, I can do it my way, but also still work within the system. And it doesn't. And instead we get literally two decades worth of really weird fucking shit that is also unlike anything else anyone is making. Yeah. Like, I enjoyed watching part of Dune, but if it took the failure of Dune to get what we're about to talk about in future episodes... Fuck Dune every day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, I say yeah, but and I, I don't really know what we're in for, to be oh perfectly God, honest. Terry. But The best stuff. We are coming up on the really, really good Lynch stuff now. <laughs> see, I can't wait. I'm, I'm really excited because I feel like this is an outlier in that regard. I can see. I can see the connective yep. tissue between Eraserhead in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, you know. Having a cast of mate return because we had uh, Jack, yeah, Nance Jack Nance in Eraserhead mm-hmm. and he plays a I kept staring at him going, why does he look so familiar? And then I was like, mm-hmm. oh, that's right. He was he was the guy in Eraserhead. That's wild. Yeah. We'll see Jack Nance turn up a bunch more times. OK,
1: too.
0: <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm really excited to see where we're going to go next, because this is uh, this feels like at least initially for me, a, a complete outlier. And I believe that's mm-hmm. what everyone
1: says about this movie, too in terms of lynch's career yeah you are correct from now on we're we're back full time into the kind of weirdness
0: that's what i like to see
1: there we go but uh that's not what we're going to be talking about next time terry because we have to jump back over to cronenberg and ironically enough we also have to jump back five years because (laughs) uh we're gonna go back into the late 70s We need to talk about the worst breakup in cinema history, Terry. (laughs) And this is fun because this is a film that you've seen before as well. So we're going to talk about The Brood.
0: I'm very excited. This is one of the few that I had seen before. And I, in fact, it was more of a relatively recent watch too, because not to plug the other podcast, but on Scarred for Life, we did talk with Carter Smith, director Carter Smith, about Mm -hmm. The Brood. And so that is my familiarity with it because of of the podcast and i'm really i'm really excited to go
1: visit it again because i really enjoyed that one. Oh my god yeah this this to me is also where cronenberg really starts to get his i don't want to say his comfort level but like he starts to tell stories that i think are less about okay i'm just gonna do the thing and more like I really want to start to explore things like the thematics and his visuals to me start to coalesce a lot more into more deeply rooted, interesting stories because the brood is obviously a very personal movie for him. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. So that's next time. But if folks want to open the conversation about Dune with us and tell us all of the things that we got wrong, or maybe <laughs> what the difference is between sci-fi and fantasy terry how would they get a hold of you uh you will find me on twitter i suppose and instagram <laughs> and
0: if hive ever comes up again right? Um, <laughs> what's going on there uh <laughs> at gaily dreadful and <laughs> and joe if if they want to see you actually model some uh like head capes uh where can i find you
1: i was like i'm not gonna try on the weird v underwear thing oh come on come on your instagram says you could pull it off ah (laughs) (laughs) well in that case if you want to see me try yes i can be (laughs) found. no i will not um you you can find me at b stole my remote and that's the letter b And of course, thank you, as always, to the Anatomy of a Screen Pod Squad Network for hosting the show. Love doing Sexy and Surreal because it's honestly, I mean, I just love getting to have conversations with you. But this is still such a fun journey.
0: Yes, it really is. And here's here's the thing, listeners. Oh, if we can get, you know, 200, let's say 200 uh, reviews or ratings on the Anatomy of a Screen Pod Squad, I think Joe should should try on that that V thing. What do you think about that,
1: Joe? Okay, you know what? If we can make that happen, I I will acquiesce to this outrageous demand. Mostly because I know it will never happen, so I'm safe. I'm safe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that'll do it for this round until we come back to talk about divorce and so much more. So much more. <laughs> uh, let's say... I don't know. Don't ride sandworms.
0: <laughs> the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad.